Grace, would you pray with me? Father God, we just lift up and are so appreciative for our musicians, the hard work they put in, Father. They bless us, they bless you, and we probably don't even know the half of what they do, they, the AV team. Father, we also want to lift up little worshipers, Father. It's so cool to see a pastor going in and saying, I want to teach the little ones. Father, thank you for that. That's a wonderful, wonderful gift, Father. Father, thank you for our little ones. Please lead them to faith. Please prepare them for, for their day where they're in here with us, Father. We are so excited for that day to be here. Father, we just ask now that you would open our hearts, open our eyes, Father, that we would hear your voice in this text, Father. We would hear you speaking, Father. We love you and we praise you. We ask these blessings in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, amen, amen. All right, well, Grace, go with me in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. We're continuing to learn about life in Jesus's kingdom, life as Jesus's disciple. That's what we're doing. And today, we're going to see how this applies to our enemies. Perhaps one of the most famous teachings of Jesus, maybe one of the most distinctive moral teachings in all of the Bible, is the call to love our enemy. We all have enemies, right? Oh, man, it's frustrating. We all have people who vex us, who are just a constant thorn in our side. Let me, let me tell you just about one particular instance in our life, Julia and I. We lived in Houston for a year, and we were ready to buy a home. We were excited to buy a home. The housing market was hot, just about as hot as it is here. And man, we found like a couple different options. Put in the initial paperwork. And it came back that we would not be able to buy a house. We could not figure out why. We had always maintained really good financial practices. Um, we had a good, great credit rating. So I went in to check my credit rating, and I was like, whoa, something has happened. <laughs> We've fallen off the edge of a cliff. What is going on here? And as I dug in, here's what I found. Wells Fargo, yeah, we're calling them out, Wells Fargo, had posted a few, not one, but a few 90-day past-due notices on our credit rating. 90 days. Here's what they had done. They had posted the 90-day past-due notice the day after the bill posted. Not, not, not the due date the day after, but the day that it posted. For example, just to make Super clear, our jaws should be like this, right? If the bill posted in their system on October the 1st, somebody who loved Julia and I was going in on October the 2nd and putting in that the bill was 90 days past due. This happened a couple times. You're not buying a house like that. We watched house after house that we were interested in, gone, 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 like pancakes. I called Wells Fargo. I kept getting escalated, right? Usually you get the runaround, but for some reason I was getting escalated. And I wound up talking to somebody who was on a recorded call with me that was a part of their executive leadership team. What does that mean? I have no clue. It's the weirdest phone call I think I've had in my life. This man would listen to me, take 15 to 30 seconds to wait to respond to me, and then all they would come back with was a yes, no, or here's the good one, 
I can't answer that. It's like he had a lawyer sitting there right next to him, right, telling him, say this, say that, keep it, no, 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 keep it short. You know, it was odd. How do you think Julia and I felt about that? Little heat? Yeah, yeah. How do we respond as Jesus' disciples in situations like this? How do we respond when it's not just financial damage, but it's relational damage, maybe even physical damage? How do we respond? What do we do? How should I treat their employee who was going, ha, 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 and clicking it off? How do I treat that doofus on the other, I shouldn't have said that. How do I treat that executive team leader that was on the other end of the line with me, right? How do we do this? Today we learn how to live and respond when we've got enemies at the gate. Let's go to God's word. Let's see what he says. Go with me, Matthew 5, verse 43. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. Verse 43, Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Grace, this is the word of the Lord. And it is given to us in love and for our good. Amen. All right, here's how we're going to get at this. There's four movements that we're going to look at today as we look at how to love our enemies. First movement will be this. What does it mean? What does it mean to love my enemy? The second movement will be this. Why should I? Why should I love my enemy? The third movement will be this. Why don't I? What holds me back? What keeps me from following this command that's so clear? And then finally, we'll look at how we get there, what it means, why we should do it, why we don't, and how we get there. Let's look at what it means. Let's look at what it means. Go with me to verses 43 and 44. As we look at what it means, let's start with verse 43. There's something we need to see here. You see, in verse 43 and 44, Jesus is correcting a problem in his day, a misteaching. You know, many in Jesus' day thought that it was actually God-honoring to love neighbor and hate enemy. Here's the weird thing. The Old Testament never says that. It never says that at all. So how did this happen? How did this happen? Go with me to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. We'll have it on the screen for you. How did this happen? I think this is how it happened. It's something like this. If I am to love my neighbor, my fellow Israelite is my neighbor, those other people are not, therefore I don't love them, therefore I hate them. Little convoluted, little weird, that's the best I got to explain how we got there. This is what Jesus is correcting though. This is a twisted teaching. It should not have happened, especially, how many of you remember the Old Testament reading? Right? Like, let's look at it again. Let's go back to Exodus 23. Right? Especially when you see, go help your neighbor with a donkey. Donkeys are known for being stubborn, right? We have to go help them with that. There's the foundation for love. 
Why do we need to see this? Why do we need to spend a little bit of time here? Here's one reason why you need to see this. There is a misconception about the Old and New Testament. A lot of people have this misconception, especially if they're not of the faith. As we take the gospel outside of the four walls, we're going to encounter people who think that the Old Testament is basically judgment and wrath. The New Testament is basically love. And then they'll say, see, God contradicts himself. It's two different gods. Christianity contradicts itself. And the answer is no. No. The Old Testament has love and the New Testament has judgment and wrath. I just read Colossians 3 this morning in my devotionals. It's there. It's not a true statement. It's a misconception. We need this corrected, but there's a more important reason why we need to know this, and that reason is this. The word enemy may not have fit under the vocabulary, the category of neighbor in Jesus' day, You know, the the word enemy may not fit in our vocabulary or be filed as a category under neighbor in our day, but in God's vocabulary, in God's categories, it always has and it always will. And that standard is still in effect today. Look at verse 44. Loving our enemy is a part of of the moral code of Jesus's kingdom. It's part of the constitution, it's written in. So we've gotta ask this question. Okay, what does it mean to love my enemy? What does it mean? I need some help here. We gotta, we gotta clarify this. There's a lot of routes we can go down. Here's three, here's three. Let's start here. Loving our enemy means doing good to our enemy. Loving our enemy means doing good to our enemy. We saw this in the Old Testament passages. If an enemy is in trouble, help him. We can go to Luke's gospel and we can hear Jesus say, do good to your enemy. We can go to Romans 12 and we can hear Paul say, bless your enemy, bless them. Now, doing good Blessing does not mean be a doormat. No, not at all. It doesn't mean enable destructive behaviors in another person's life. It does not even mean that you have to like them. But the point's clear. Do good, help, bless. It is a no less than. That's the first thing we see as we answer the question, what does it mean to love my enemy? Here's another thing we need to keep in mind. Loving our enemy means going beyond just doing good. Loving our enemy means going beyond just doing, emphasis doing, good. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3. You see that up there? Paul says, if I give away all that I have, dot, 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 but do not have what? Love, good, good, thank you. Paul is saying, you can give away everything you have and not have love in your heart. You can begrudgingly change an enemy's tire. You can take an enemy out for a meal and not look them in the eye, not talk to them, and give them the silent treatment. You can go passive-aggressive, and in your heart say, I'm going to show them. I'm going to show them I'm the better person, and be nice to them and have that as a motive in our hearts. You can do good on the outside, but have hatred on the inside for your enemy. In Jesus's kingdom, the heart, the motive, 
the desire matters. We are to set aside bearing grudges, animosity. We are to set aside rejoicing over someone else's downfall. Even in the face of someone who has wronged us, we are still concerned for their welfare and well-being. So loving an enemy means more than just doing good. It means wanting good for them. Here's another thing that loving our enemy means. Loving your enemy means loving even your worst enemy. Yes, even Wells Fargo. You know, as we understand Jesus, we want to ask, what if my enemy does something really, really bad, like unthinkable, unimaginably bad? I mean, there's got to be a point where my love runs out, right? Like I'm dry. I got nothing. Yes, yes, we still love even the worst of our enemies. Look at verse 44. Do you see how Jesus calls us to pray for someone who's persecuting us? Like, Someone who's persecuting you for your faith has got to be the hardest person to love. It's got to be up there. It's got to be like icing on the cake, maybe the candle, maybe the flame up at the tip, right? What's worse than somebody who's persecuting you? And don't forget who Jesus is teaching. Don't forget his original audience. Some of these people are going to be eaten by lions. Some of these people are going to watch their best friend get stoned to death or beheaded. Still others We'll have a mom in the home who's had her tongue bolted through the roof of her mouth to keep her from talking about Jesus. In fact, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story from the early church, from some of the earliest days of persecution. Some people say this story goes back to 100 AD, which means John might still have been alive. Here's the story. There's a man named Proculus. Everybody say Proculus. Right, like that's fun. That sounds like a weird green vegetable, Proculus, all right? Proculus, let's just roll with it. Proculus was a rich man with hundreds of slaves. His slave Paulus was so trustworthy that Proculus set him over all of them. Once, Proculus took Paulus to the slave market. There they found a weak old man. Paulus urged his owner to buy that weak old man. Proculus answered, but he's good for nothing. It's like he's a charity case. But Paulus insisted, buy him and I promise that the work in your home will get done even better. So Proculus relented, he agreed, he bought him and Paulus was good to his word. Work around the house went better than ever. But Proculus noticed something about Paulus. It was as if Paulus was working for two masters. Why? The old slave did no work at all. Proculus tended to him, or excuse me, Paulus tended to him, gave him the best food, and even made him lie down and rest. Curious, Proculus approached Paulus and said, who is this slave? Is he like your father that's been sold into slavery? Paulus said, no, I owe this man more than I owe my own father. Is he your teacher? No, I owe more than my teacher. Who then, who is this man? Paulus said, this is my enemy. Proculus was shocked. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to respond. He stood speechless. Paulus continued. He said, as for me, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ who taught us to love our enemies. Does love ever run out when you're fueled by Christ? 
No, it doesn't. A follower of Jesus loves even his or her worst enemy. Grace, there's no getting around it. We're called by our king to love our enemies, to seek their good from a heart that wants good for them, regardless of the harm they've brought. But Jesus doesn't just leave us with the command. It's actually, we're going to see, this is actually kind of unique. He gives us some motives. He gives us some reasons. He gives us some why. Let's unpack that why now. Let's look at why we should love our enemy. And as we move on in the text, we find that Jesus gives us two motives in verses 45 and then in verses 46 and 47. Let's go to verse 45. Let's look at this first motive. What's this first motive? We love our enemy. Why? Because it's just who our father is. It's just who our father is. It's what he's like. Here's what Jesus is saying in verse 45. He's saying, your father is kind to all. He blesses all. I mean, look at verse 45 again. Look carefully. Do you see how active God is in verse 45? It's his son. He makes it to rise. It's his clouds. It's his rain. And he sends it to fall on the evil and the unjust. He blesses all. He does not limit material blessing only to those who serve him, only to those who, who worship him, only to those who follow him. No. He blesses those who deny him. He blesses those and does good to those who oppose his ways. Why does he do this? Why does he do this? He does it because that's just who he is. That's his character. That's his heart. It's good and it's kind. But here's another reason. Here's another reason why he does it that shows his goodness and his kindness. Go with me to Acts chapter 14, verses 16 through 17. Do you see that up on the screen? You see how our God, speaking to people who are not Jews, have no concept of Yahweh or the Old Testament, he says, I sent the rain on you so that you can have full belliness and no happiness. And he does it to give witness to himself, to reveal something of himself as a creator. He gives them a means of knowing that he is there to inspire them to seek after him, to run after him, to see that this Zeus fella ain't cutting it. There's gotta be something more. He does not leave people alone and then just judge them. No, he's good, he's kind. He gives testimony and witness to who he is. Do you know the God of the Bible as a father? Do you know him as a father? Do you know him as a good father? Is your heart aligned with his heart? If it is, then this is how you will treat the person who has wronged you. This is how you will treat your enemy. You will treat your enemy the way your father does. You'll seek their good, but you'll also seek to give witness to Jesus so they can hear about him. Look at verse 45 again. There's even a benefit tucked away in this motive, right? You get to become more like him. Jesus is not saying here, if you love your enemy, then God will bless you and make you his son. No, we call that works righteousness. We throw that out the door. It doesn't work. We can't earn God's love. We can't earn his affection. Jesus did that for us. But here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that as you live this out, as you love your enemy, you will become more and more like your father in heaven. As you love your enemy, you will see more and more of his wisdom 
As you practice loving your enemy, you see more and more of his mission go forward and you see more lives changed. That right there motivates us to love our enemy. It's the first motivation, the first reason we see in the text. As we go to verses 46, 47, what do we see? We see a second motivation, a second reason. Let's look at that now. Here's the next motive in these two verses. As we love our enemies, we put something entirely different on the table. We put something entirely different. We offer something different to the world. Here's Jesus's point. Even the most detestable members of society can love, right? Like look at the tax collectors, look at the Gentiles. Some of you have heard this, some of you have not. This is okay. This is why the tax collectors were so bad. They extorted and they bullied their own countrymen to collect taxes for the Roman Empire that was occupying and oppressing their people. They were seen as turncoats and traitors. If you're here and you haven't read the Bible before, think of it this way. China conquers us and your next door neighbor starts collecting for the Chinese IRS. And then they go one deeper. They extort you. They defraud you. Why? Because the government assesses this much. They collect that much. What do they do with this much? Goes right back here in their back pocket. Pretty gross. We would not be happy with a person like that. We would not like a person like that. Jesus says, out of this crowd, even these people, they'll give some of that ill-gotten gain to mama. They'll look out for their friends. Jesus is saying, if you only love the people who love you, there's no different, there's no higher, there's no better that you're putting on the table. He says, you're not giving them a reason to reconsider their ways. You're not giving them a reason to really want to change, no. In fact, let's apply this today. Let's look at our polarized society. Do we live, Grace, in a polarized society? Is there not a chasm between left and right, progressive, conservative, where we stand on abortion, immigration, gun control? What am I missing? Oh yeah, the LGBTQ agenda. Is there a gap? Is there a gulf? Dumb question, right? Thank you, Captain Obvious. Yes, there is. Think about our polarized society. What will bridge the gap? What will bridge the gap? What will bring people together? It won't be only loving people who believe what we believe, watching the news station we watch, listening to the podcast, reading the blogs that we read and listen to, voting the way I vote, and pursuing the same social policies and political agenda that I pursue. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that won't bring change, that won't bridge the gulf, that won't create relationships where we can get Jesus on the docket. If anything, it'll allow us to drift further because we just insulate in our own little bubbles, religious bubbles, secular bubbles, right? There's both types, and we just drift. Jesus says that when you love your enemies, you start building a bridge towards your enemy. He says, when you love and greet your enemy, you're putting something entirely new on the table that's not even on their radar screen. You're offering an alternative way. You're offering a better way. You're saying this. You're saying to your enemy, the love of God the Father that I have has given me the courage and given me the strength to seek your best even when you want me and my way of life wiped off the map. There's power in that. And putting that out there in an act of love or a simple greeting 
starts to churn things in other people's hearts. Dr. Martin Luther King said it this way, the words of this text glitter in our eyes with a new urgency. Far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, this command is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. 60 years later, it's still true. Yes, it is love that will save our world and our civilization, love even for our enemies. Jesus is such a good teacher here. He gives us the what and the command, but he gives us the why and the motive. These can be powerful motives for the person who loves Jesus. They can work in us and propel us forward. But there's a problem, isn't there? This is so hard to do. <laughs> it is for me. I don't know about you. I still struggle to do this. I need more help. In fact, let's look at why we struggle with this. Let's look at the obstacles that we have. Let's look at why we don't love our enemies. You know, if Jesus has given us two reasons why we should love our enemies, I think we have to stop and ask, hold on, wait a minute. He just did something different. Throughout this entire chunk of Matthew chapter five, he has focused on the how. This is what Jesus has done, whether it's anger, lust, divorce, letting your yes be your yes, or turning the other cheek, all things that we have covered. Jesus does this, three movements. Here's what it was said, out with the old, Here's the new. Here's some examples for how to do it. Go do it. Get after it. He's focused on the how. What does he do here? Very little how. Pray. That's it. Pray. That, that's the how. What does he do here? He's focused on the why. Why did he shift? Why the change? That caught my attention this week. And I think, underline, I think it's this. It's because Jesus is merciful and he knows how hard this will be for us. Even with his motives in place, even with his reasons and his command to love our enemy, he knows that we need help. He knows that it's tough. So let's unpack those things in our heart. Let's go there. Let's put the magnifying glass and the spotlight on and let's know our hearts at a deeper level. Let's be self-aware. Let's unpack some of the reasons that we don't love our enemy. As I've gotten to know you, as I've thought about my own life, I've got three for you today. Let's cover these three. Here's the first reason I think it's hard to love our enemies. It's this. We don't want to get hurt, right? Like, raise your hand if you want to be hurt, right? No. <laughs> no. When we are confronted with a person who has stolen money or possessions or even clients from us, Someone who keeps conspiring, gossiping, or slandering against you. Someone who has hurt our loved ones. Someone whom we've given repeated chances to change, and they just won't. When we're confronted with loving people like this, there are risks. There's risks. There's the risk of being taken advantage of. There's the risk of being made a fool. There's the risk of suffering loss, and none of these are fun. They're not. We need to confront, we need to confront the reality that there's a risk in loving our enemies. In military terms, we're exposing a flank. It may be the prospect of loss, it may be the prospect of being hurt again, but there's still a call to love, right? Like we have to be wise, we have to be discerning in how we will love, 
It's not wrong to have boundaries sometimes. It's not wrong to pursue police action or other legal action, but there's still a call to love our enemy. There is. That's one reason. What's the next reason? I think another reason we don't love our enemies is because we don't see the enemy behind the enemy. We look at our physical enemy and we don't see the larger spiritual enemy behind them. What do I mean? Here's what I mean. We miss that there's a spiritual enemy at work. Satan, sin, and death are spiritual enemies trying to influence life. I don't wanna get spooky spooky about this, but they're real. They may have a grip on that other person. We learned last week that we're freed from those forces. Pastor Brad did a great job of that, but we can go back to the old man. We can fall back into old habits. We can fall under the grip of who we used to be. Either way, Satan, sin, and death want to do whatever they can to discredit the name of Jesus. They want to get at that person to create a stain on Jesus. They want to use that person to get at you so you create a stain on Jesus. Whatever it takes, they want to discredit the name of Jesus. It's actually not about you and that other person in that moment. It's about Jesus and his glory. It's hard to remember this, though. It's hard to remember this. There are dark forces at work in this world. But when we forget them and we only see the human enemy in front of us, then we will only seek human solutions. We will seek to assert dominance. We will feel that instinct to attack and to win start to kick in. We will miss that what our enemy needs most is the same freedom that Jesus Christ has given us. And so we miss that showing the love of Christ really is the way forward. Grace, here's another reason. Here's the third reason. We often minimize our own sinfulness. So we don't want to get hurt. We don't see the enemy behind the enemy. And we minimize our own sinfulness. I mean, when we have rivalries going on with other people, a couple things tend to happen. I don't know about you, but here's, what, here's where I can go. I can tend to completely miss or ignore the dysfunction that I've brought to the situation. I can whitewash my sin, I can rationalize my motives, and I can paint the other person in the worst possible light, right? Get me arguing with somebody in my head, I win 99 times out of 100, right? At the same time, we also miss that our motives have not been God's glory. And so when we minimize our sin, and our sin isn't that big, our need for Jesus isn't that big, and if our need for Jesus isn't that big, his mercy and his grace isn't that big. And if his mercy and his grace isn't that big, his love is not that big in our lives. Let me show you. We've looked at this diagram before. I think we've got it up there. Let's go to the diagram. You've seen this before. This is a description of the Christian's life. It's a wonderful diagram, super easy to remember. The arrow up top, says this, as I walk with Jesus, as I mature in my walk, I grow in my awareness of God's goodness and his holiness. What does that bottom arrow say? It says, as I mature, as I walk with Jesus, I become more and more aware of how sinful I am. Now, at first you're like, why would I ever sign up for Christianity? Oh, this is beautiful. This is beautiful and here's why. Go next slide. As you grow, in that double awareness, the cross gets bigger in your life. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger as you walk through this world. If we don't see, if we don't grow in seeing how sinful we are, then we'll never see how truly and deeply loved we are at the cross. 
If our view of sin stays small, then our experience of God's love will stay small. And if God's love stays small, then we won't think of the cross as the solution for our enemy. We won't think of God's love as the solution for our enemy. Grace, it's so hard to love our enemies and put this into practice, isn't it? Ah, but we've got to identify the why, and then we've got to look at where the final help comes from. We've got to see how we get there. How do we get there? Let's go to our fourth point. How do we get there? In the face of these considerable obstacles in our hearts, what do we do? How do we get over this hump so that Jesus' two motives have electricity turning and churning and cranking in our lives? You know, this isn't just hard to do. If you go to verse 48 and look at verse 48, Jesus says we must do it. Like he ratchets up the pressure on us. He says, you're not worthy of the kingdom if you do not live with a perfect love. How are we gonna do this? Where is this gonna come from? Like on our own, apart from Christ, we cannot bring ourselves to do this. We can white knuckle some begrudging obedience and do good, but we will not have love in our hearts. How do we get there? We need something outside of us. We need something wholly other to get us to actually have love in our hearts for our enemy. We need something to happen in us first so that Jesus's motives can propel us to follow Jesus's command to love our enemy. This grace is where we need the gospel. You see, even though we minimize our sin, even though we don't see it as that big of a deal, God the Father does. Think about this with me. How often do we compare ourselves to other people and go, you know what? I'm generally doing all right. How many times do we measure our holiness and our righteousness, not by God's standards, but by other people? And that gives us a skewed view. How often have we not loved our enemies? How often have we struggled to rid our hearts of, of acid, of bitterness, of malice, of ill will? How, how often have we rationalized the way God's call to love our enemy and whittled it down into something manageable or something softer so that we can handle it or soften the blow to our conscience? How many times have we whitewashed our culpability and a rivalry and maximized the other person's sin? God the Father sees all of that. He sees all of that. We would stand before his throne with our hearts laid bare and he would see it all. He would see our actions, our words. He would see through to our core motives, our desires, what's in our heart. He would see our self-deceptions, our rationalizations, our half-hearted attempts at managing ourselves. He would see that we cling to desires to get even, to hold on to grudges, because let's be honest, sometimes they feel good. He would see that we can even delight in another person's suffering, a person that he made. We could very easily say that we stand before God's throne, before God the judge, as his enemy. And grace, what's his response? What does he do about this? Despite all of this, what is his response to us as his enemies? He sent his son to love his enemies. That's what he did. Jesus came and lived, verse 48, for us. He came and he lived a perfect life of loving his enemies for us. And then he did something just as amazing. He switched places with us. 
He, he took on our judgment. He stood in our place as a condemned enemy and died in our place to pay our penalty. The perfect son of God died as an enemy of God for you and for me. And he did that so that by faith in him, we could stand in Jesus's place. You see, when you come to faith in Christ, when you have faith in Christ, his perfect life of loving his enemies covers you. It's how God the Father sees you. It is now yours. You can stand before God's throne, before his bench. He bangs the gavel, calls you innocent, proclaims you as perfect, and then he does something else. God the judge walks down from the bench, puts an arm around you, and calls you son or daughter. He adopts us. And now that ruling judge has a vested interest in our lives as long as we live, which is into eternity. Is that amazing? Does that put amazing into grace for us? I mean, do you see that? Do you feel that? That is his very love for you. That is his love for his enemies. And that right there gets you over the hump. That right there vivifies and electrifies Jesus's motives so that we can live out Jesus's command. God the Father loved his enemies, and now we get to go out and be sons and daughters who go love with the same love we've been given. So grace, go. Go out from here as an enemy who has been loved and give love, the love of Christ, to your enemies. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. Father, let us never take it for granted that we get to call you Father. Let us never take it for granted that we've been cleared, pardoned, cleansed, washed, scrubbed, robed in Jesus' perfect life. Let us never take it for granted that he died for us. No. Oh, Father, please let that be, oh, Father, something that strums the strings of our hearts, that pops praise, generates gratitude, Father, and works up worship. Father, help us to live from this place so that we can go and live loving our enemies. We love you, Father, and we praise you. And all God's people say, amen.